0: Welcome to the first Funds fan podcast of 2021. I'm Kyle Caldwell, Collectives Editor at Interactive Investor. Later on in the podcast, our Fund Manager guest is James Dupper, who is Chief Investment Officer of Majedi Asset Management, and since last March has been the Fund Manager of the Edinburgh Investment Trust. Following on from that interview, at the end of the podcast, Theodore Diloff, Fund Analyst at Interactive Investor, will name an investment trust that he believes is well placed to return to form in 2021. But, as usual, we start off with the latest news developments for fund and investment trust investors. To chat through a couple of items, I have with me Tom Bailey, ETF's editor at Interact Investor. Tom, I wanted to start off with a look back at the best performing and worst performing fund sectors in 2020, Could you run through the top three and bottom three?
1: Sure. So there's no prizes for guessing that technology sector funds saw the best performance with an average return of 45%. Tech stocks had a great year, particularly the mega cap tech companies like Apple, Tesla, Amazon, Microsoft. The second best performance sector was China and greater China with the average fund performance at 32%. Uh, China was first in and first out of the pandemic with the country eventually managing to contain the virus very well. Um, so, China is the only major economy expected to see positive economic growth this year. And then also, much of Asia did quite well in controlling the virus. And so, the Asia Pacific, including Japan, sector came in third with an average, average return of 27%. Now, at the bottom of the table was UK equity income, with an average loss of 13%. This was the result of huge dividend cuts across the UK's historic best payers, notably banks and energy companies. This was followed by another two UK sectors UK equity income and bond and the UK all company sector, both of which lost around 9%. But it's, it's important to note that around a third of fund sectors, uh, so 12 out of 39, uh, recorded gains of 10% or more, dated from January 1st to December 21st. Given the sell-off in the first quarter, that's just pretty good. I think that statistic
0: um, serves as a reminder that holding your nerve and thinking long-term are two of the key ingredients of successful investing. Obviously, there was the heavy market sell-off over a four-week period in the first quarter of 2020, Overall, for the first quarter of 2020, the MSCI World Index declined by nearly 16%. Well, investors who panicked during that time and crystallized their losses by selling will have missed out on the big stock market recovery that has taken place since the end of March. Moving on, I wanted to next focus on the funds and investment trusts that Interactive Investor customers have been turning their attentions to. Each month, we reveal the 10 most popular funds and investment trusts based on the number of buys. In December, there was a notable change at the top as the fund that has been the most popular since June 2018 was ousted from the top spot. Tom, could you run through the details?
1: Yeah, so Fundsmith was finally ousted from its position as the most popular fund on the IA platform, uh, positioned at the Hill for two and a half years. Uh, Taking its place was Bailey Gifford American. So this tech heavy America fund uh, had a great year returning over 120%. In contrast, Fundsmith returned around 20%. Not bad, but obviously there's a huge difference there. So, so Bailey Gifford American is obviously a very good fund and there's plenty of reasons to invest in it, but it does look like there's could be some uh, performance chasing going on here among investors. Uh, you can see a similar thing with December's most poor ETFs. So the iShares Global Clean Energy ETF managed to dislodge the, the iShares FTSE 100s ETF, which has long held the place as the most popular ETF. The Clean Energy ETF also saw a similar performance of, of around 120% throughout the year. So again, I, I'm not saying uh, investors buying in December are necessarily making the wrong decision, but investors should be cautious of buying stuff simply on the basis that it's had a good year. In addition, um, the, the data also shows
0: that the UK remains firmly out of favour as an investment destination. And um, This was further reflected by the fact that City of London Investment Trust dropped out of the top 10 most popular trusts in December. This is a favoured holding among income investors due to its remarkable consistency in growing dividends. In July 2020, it raised its dividends for the 54th consecutive
1: year. It's interesting that UK-focused uh, active funds and, and trusts have fallen out of favour because when it comes to the ETF data, FTSE 100 and FTSE 250 focused ETFs are still, still in there. The second most bought uh, ETF is, is the iShares FTSE 100 ETF. There's also the Vanguard FTSE 100 ETF. There's also the Vanguard C250 ETF in there, and there's also the Wisdom Tree Triple Leverage C100 ETFs. Among passive investors, there seems to be not such a falling appetite for UK-focused funds.
0: Indeed, and in the months ahead, um, it'll be interesting to see whether there is increased appetite for actively managed uh, UK funds, um, particularly on the back of the um, post-Brexit trade deal that was struck on uh, Christmas Eve and hopefully some more positive developments in terms of the COVID-19 vaccine rollouts. For the next part of the podcast, I am joined by James Dupper, who is Chief Investment Officer of Majedi Asset Management and Fund Manager of the Edinburgh Investment Trust. James, thank you for your time and welcome to the podcast.
2: Kyle, good to be here.
0: So, James, you took over the Edinburgh Investment Trust on the 4th of March 2020, which was in the eye of the COVID 19 stock market storm. Could you explain how you restructured the portfolio during that time? And in addition, how you approached the dividend drought that was starting to emerge at that time?
2: I think late March really could have seen almost an intergenerational peak in stock market volatility. But, you know, I turn it around and say to you and, you know, your investors that actually if you're a, a flexible investor working with a, a team of analysts and fund managers, actually volatility is something really to embrace because with it comes, a, a frankly, a boatload of opportunity to make money responsibly. And indeed, you know, once we'd formally completed the change, uh, the restructuring, actually the evidence is that the trust is nicely ahead of the benchmark over the period, and the discount, which is obviously important in the trust sector, has begun to narrow as investors have warmed to our approach and the early evidence in our results. You know, as to the dividend drought, we adopt a a total return approach. So you're looking for each holding to have a mix of capital growth and income. And, you know, obviously, the reality is, as countries have been put into lockdown by governments, companies rightly prioritised liquidity in in the short term. But the reality is actually in investment, what we're really after is making sure that the companies we hold actually have strong medium term earnings power, which determines the distribution power. So I say to you, yes, there's been a temporary drought. The trust has weathered that well. And the holdings we have for the medium term, have very strong distribution power now that the air has been cleared. So we're in a good
0: position. So under its former management, the um, Edinburgh Investment Trust has a bias towards value shares. So how has that now changed since you've um, took over the trust?
2: Uh, Yeah, you're right to say that if you look at it through the lens of something like uh, Morningstar, uh, which is, you know, an industry leading uh, analytics company, the portfolio did in the past have a value bias. I've restructured the portfolio with my colleagues so that it has a blend of styles. Um, so if you look at it under that same Morningstar classification, you know, big clusters, core, large clap with a with a blend of styles. And frankly, it was on that basis that the Board of Edinburgh Investment Trust appointed Majedi to this prestigious mandate. The record uh, we presented was one of 2.6 percent per annum outperformance over the period since 2006. And that was achieved on this same type of Core blended style approach. So that, you know, if I zero in in the portfolio itself, I want to stress that we have shares that are value shares, so the likes of NatWest West Group, and we have shares that are, you know, growth shares like the Dunelms or the NXP Semis of this world, one of our global holdings, hence the word blend. So, you know, we have positioned uh, the portfolio, repositioned the portfolio much more as a sort of core portfolio. Uh, I've got 45 stocks with multiple themes which I've selected in conjunction with my fund management and analyst colleagues and you know is primarily uk listed shares but I also have the luxury of choosing some global stocks and this where there's particularly interesting valuation opportunity um, so we have, as I said, the likes of NXP or KPN or uh, Newmont Mining, a gold company. And each holding that we decide to choose is only chosen after a lot of fundamental deep research, looking at both the capital and income characteristics of, of, of the shares. Obviously, ESG is integrated within that approach, because we need to make sure that the returns are generated in a way that works for all stakeholders. Because, you know, I think as COVID has proved, you know, capitalism has to be responsible.
0: Could you go into more detail regarding how um, you've adopted um, environmental, social and governance integration into um, the Trust? Could you also explain your approach to ESG in relation to how it's applied to um, mining, oil and defence businesses, which are held in the trust, and some investors may regard those sorts of sectors as more sin stocks than saints?
2: Great question, Carl. The reality is that majority, when looking at you know any company, what we're looking to do is think about what are the key risks and opportunities. And Within that, you know, some of these will naturally be environmental, social, or have a governance angles. And the key for us is to identify those along with the fundamental issues, and also to to appraise how the management is dealing with those issues. So, you know, you asked how it applied to our mining, oil, and defence businesses. Perhaps if I just choose, you know, the first of those, the, the mining companies, and look at it through the lens of, let's say, Anglo's, which is our largest uh, mining company holding. You know, we've held those shares for, you know, well over uh, five years. It's been a great performer, and indeed a nice contributor to the latter period of that. Record of outperformance, which I talked about earlier, but if you take a step back, you know mining companies produce metals uh, like copper uh, that are crucial for the necessary greening of um economic growth, but you know also candidly, mining companies produce the likes of, let's say, thermal coal. The latter, you know, thermal coal needs urgently to be substituted with less carbon-intensive forms of energy, you know, renewables, LNG, et cetera, et cetera. And in the case of Anglo, Anglo-American, you know, they've made a huge stride over the last decade to recycle their capital employed. And remember, these are long-duration projects, into the likes of copper, and um, the most recent one was um, polyhalite, you know, which is this um, crop nutrient project in North Yorkshire, and recycle away from thermal coal. And you know, it set out definitive timelines to exit their thermal coal assets that they control. And indeed, frankly, we've engaged with the management of Anglos to ask them to accelerate that timetable. So, you know, in the case of Anglos, one of our holdings, yes, it has a small residual thermal coal holding. But if you look at the balance of the business and how it's managing the thermal coal, you know, it actually gets a big tick in the box in terms of how it's managing that risk. And then also, obviously, mining companies use Scarce resources, you know, you might think water, energy, often these copper assets, for example, you know, they might be in South America, the likes of Chile, Peru, where perhaps water's a bit scarce. Anglos, along with other companies, are massively mindful of their water usage and employ cutting edge technologies like coarse particle flotation and things to minimise that. And these are linked to their REM and the like. So, you know, they are very mindful. We're aware of it. And we obviously make sure and, you know, investors in this trust can be assured that what we're doing day in, day out is really integrating these issues into our investment decision making, because we want to make sure that the growth we achieve, both in terms of capital and income, is achieved in a responsible and sustainable way for uh, the trust shareholders, of which obviously I am a shareholder myself.
0: And given that um, you wouldn't traditionally see those sorts of areas such as mining in an ESG portfolio, then that's surely a way that you're adding value to that part of the market?
2: Well, we think so, because, you know, we think that we're stewards of capital, and to adopt a black and white approach to this complicated uh, issue, we think is oversimplistic. Um, And what I've tried to do by explaining it through the lens of Anglo-American is really to show how complicated it is, because mining companies do produce a lot of things that are necessary for the nature of economic growth that we need in the future, but also they produce legacy products which they need to substitute away from. And it's our role, we think, as stewards of the Trust Capital to keep on their case to make sure that they keep on doing that. And in the case of Anglos, they are doing just that.
0: I wanted to move on to 2021 and ask you what your outlook is for UK dividends. Will it be a year that companies become less generous in terms of returning income to shareholders, Um, and rebase the dividends down to more sustainable levels?
2: We've done a lot of um, forecasting and sensitivity analysis here. And our analysis indicates that actually um, March 2021 will represent the likely nadir for dividend income. And, uh, you know, taking a step back, I mean, whilst the media has a, a pretty... Grizzly tone currently. Remember, dividends are partly also an expression of uh, future confidence. And if you think about the three big issues that have been uh, vexing the market, you know, there's Brexit, there was the US presidential election, and then there was COVID. Uh, if you think about those in turn, you know, Brexit, you've got a good deal of clarity on, on that issue. No deal has, has not happened. We have a deal. Uh, the pres- presidential election, Biden's more predictable. And critically, you've got Powell and Yellen in charge of policy from a financial perspective, and they are a pretty dovish uh, combo. Finally, obviously, you've got uh, COVID, and, you know, it's obviously mutating, but, you know, viruses do that. Uh, but I think the bigger picture is that we've got, you know, multiple vaccines that, you know, have pretty high effectiveness. And it gives us a real prospect that, you know, we can get back in due course to an open kind of normalish economy where COVID is in the rearview mirror. So, you know, I'd say to you that we're past the worst in terms of how investors think about that, dividend issue in our thinking.
0: And finally, um, it was announced in November that um, Edinburgh's dividend will be reset to a lower level from the start of the new financial year in April of this year. Was, it, was this a difficult decision to make, particularly given that shareholders may have become accustomed to the 15-year record of annual dividend increases?
2: A decision to, you know, rebase the dividend is obviously a difficult one and not taken one taken lightly. You know, I'd say to you the board's decision to, you know, rebase that dividend from twenty eight point six five pence to twenty four pence for the year to March twenty twenty two was one that was taken after, you know, huge amount of uh, granular analysis of the. Probable envelope of dividend payments from the trust's holdings, uh, and the board, you know, after much discussion, determined that twenty four pence was the level of dividend uh, from which the board expects the dividend to progressively grow in line with, you know, one of the key objectives of the trust. I recognise, you know, this is a reduction in in income. But the yield, which, as you know, is paid in quarterly increments, is still at a very competitive level. So it's 4.3% or thereabouts, which is still higher than both the IA all companies investment trust sector yield and, of course, the FTSE all share yield. So still a very competitive level, even post the uh, rebasing of the dividend.
0: Do you expect going forward that the target will be to grow that dividend year in year out
2: one of the objectives of the trust is to you know progressively grow the dividend and any decision on the dividend is obviously in the hands of the board and that decision will obviously be made in due course but like um, many investment trusts we're in, you know, we're in good shape with high levels of revenue reserves, as well as obviously the underlying income that comes from the trust holdings. So we're in we're in good shape, I would say, uh, for the future on the dividend.
0: James, thank you very much for your time today.
2: Thank you, Carl, for your time. We feel, just in, in summary, that although we're a mere nine months into this um, project, we've made a good start with a good level of outperformance and a narrowing of the discount. And I'm very aligned in this project, you know, to continue that in the years ahead.
0: For the final part of the podcast, I'm joined by Theodore Dilloff, fund analyst at Interactive Investor, who is going to run through one of Interactive Investors' Super 60 fund choices. Hi, Theo. Hi, Carl. So, what have you chosen for this episode?
3: For this edition, I'd like to focus on Utilico Emerging Markets Investment Trust, which, despite being behind its MSCI Emerging Markets Reference Index in 2020, has a great potential to benefit from the ongoing recovery in emerging markets, and especially in those areas where economic activity is about to start normalizing. Um, in addition, the strong yields that the strategy offers currently a uh, of 4.1% should have more supportive role for the total returns going forward. In 2021, I think this trust has a great potential to bounce back and have a much better year. It is run by Charles Jillings, who has over 30 years of experience and aims to provide attractive long-term absolute returns by investing in companies in emerging markets, primarily operating in the areas of utilities, infrastructure and other related subsectors. Uh, what is appealing about these businesses is that they operate in a regulated environment and usually offer sustainable income, which is supportive for maintaining the trust high dividend yield, which, although not being a formal objective, is one of the strategy' trends. And what does the trust invest in? The combination of individual stock-specific research from a, uh, an investable universe of over 900 candidates and macroeconomic analysis results in a portfolio of approximately 60 to 90 stocks with high concentration in the top 20 holdings, which represent over half of the entire assets. Currently the trust portfolio is a healthy mix of companies spread across defensive and more sensitive areas of the market with limited exposure to cyclicals. Top three sectors include electricity, ports and logistics and data services and infrastructure. While on a country level, the manager tends to find most investment opportunities in Brazil and China, each having 19% allocation uh, and in India with 12% position. Recently, there have been some new additions to the portfolio, which include a South Korean data center operator, the Colombian Stock Exchange, a Malayan e government operator, and a Brazilian toll road operator. And what for you makes the trust special? First and foremost, this is a unique proposition, uh, and its competition is too little to none. Its highly regarded manager has built the strategy in such a way that it's appealing to both income and more growth focused investors while providing diversification benefits and outside protection. Secondly, its sustainability of dividend yield gives the trust a competitive advantage. It should also be highlighted that environmental, social and governance factors are incorporated into the trust process, which makes it suitable for the ever growing number of ESG aware investors. And Finally, what sort of investors do you think this trust will particularly suit? Considering the trust specifics, such as investing in emerging markets and its sector concentration, this strategy could fit the needs of investors with higher risk appetite, but due to its large exposure to more defensive areas is suitable for those with more balanced approach too. The trust is currently trading at around 13% discount to its net asset value, which could also be an attractive entry point for contrarian value
0: investors. Thanks, Theo, and um, thanks to Tom Bailey, the ETFs editor, and to my guest for this episode, James Dupper, the manager of the Edinburgh Investment Trust. We'll be back in a couple of weeks.